This week's guest on The Skin We Are In is Emily Ryan, Senior Product Manager at Harvard Business Review. Emily shares her most important lesson about authenticity. It's about being authentically you because I think what I've learned is, you know, for a successful marriage and a successful life and a successful career, you can't get anywhere unless you're being authentic. This is The Skin We Are In, and I'm Jennifer Dean. The Skin We Are In is a website and podcast dedicated to telling women's stories with the goal of revealing how women both define and embody what it means to be a woman today. My guest, Emily Ryan, is a senior product manager at Harvard Business Review, a publication and website dedicated to improving the practice of management and its impact in a changing world. Emily's world is in the process of changing as she plans a fall wedding and decides what it means to be married today. Marriage from the engagement to the anniversaries that come decades later can make us evaluate or even question traditional roles and what it means to assert yourself when everyone else has an idea about what your role should be. Emily, welcome. Thanks so much, Jen. I'm so excited to be part of this podcast, and I I just think it's an amazing thing that you're doing, and so I'm just thrilled to be here. (laughs) Thank you. I'm really excited to have you. I think one of the most interesting things as I was kind of looking over all your stuff is that you were at Harvard Business Review. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can't think of a more white male, old (laughs) boys club phrase than Harvard Business Review. Yet you were recently promoted to a senior level position Mm -hmm. within the organization. So when you applied and were (laughs) interviewing for your initial position there, Did you think about how you would fit in in an organization that was historically dominated by white males? I most definitely did. I I was really intimidated going in there. I had no idea what to expect. I felt um, much like you did that it's, and and much like most people do, that it's stodgy and very academic and um, very elitist. Um, but when I went in for my first interview and even before that, when I was speaking to, um, the hiring manager, I really got a different sense. Um, and I think it's interesting. We actually just got some research back from a firm that we work with and, um, compared to, uh, like two years ago, our ratings when asked what people, um, regard us as or how people regard us. Uh, they now see us more as up and coming, kind of um, more friendly, practical, um, kind of on the edge of new ideas. And, you know, two years ago, it was much more about what you were saying, like academic and um, stodgy and male dominated. And um, don't get me wrong, like our primary audience now is still um, C-level managers, um, and our audience skews, um, at least on the website, which is a little bit different than the magazine, like 60% male and 40% female. So, um, I guess, you know, the people that I work with are really great. And I learned that quickly when I was at my interviews. And what I found really exciting was that, um, not only were there really intelligent people, but they were really intelligent women that I was going to be working really closely with. 
Um, and that's been really cool for me. So how did you get to where you are today? How did you get to be at Harvard Business Review? <laughs> you know, it wasn't planned. I um, had kind of a winding road uh, getting here. Um, I graduated from college with an English degree, and I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with that. I loved writing, and I loved reading. Um, I loved analytical thinking. And um, so I applied to law school. <laughs> and I was enrolled in law school, and about two weeks before classes were supposed to start, I had this crisis. I kind of didn't know what I was doing. I felt like I was just going to law school because I had no other options at that point or, or not that I didn't have options, but I, I didn't have a defined set of options I had identified. And, um, I decided that I was going to defer my law school, um, and ended up getting an internship at a publishing company that had an office in Massachusetts, moved there as an editor, um, ended up being kind of recruited as a product manager based on my organizational skills and you know, my ability to um, bring the customer voice to our products and also to kind of bring people around an idea. Um and that was, I spent about seven years at that company, it was Upsco Publishing, and um, I was ready to kind of learn more and do more. And so when I saw this position at Harvard, it was kind of a perfect fit for me. I was really excited about the company, um, and the position was really exciting to me at the time. The, uh, Harvard, you know, is a traditional print magazine, and is in the process of trying to become more digital. And so they were looking for the first um, platform product manager to manage the site. Um, so it was a big deal. It was kind of, I was able to really pave the way um, for product management at Harvard. And, you know, I've been there two years and I was just promoted to senior product manager um, really because of that success. We now have, um, a five-member product management group that really, you know, my um, manager said this when he, when he gave me the promotion was just that, you know, because I was able to successfully work with other teams in the organization and really just show marked improvements in the way our products on the site were um, behaving and how customers were reacting to them, you know, we were able to build this larger product management group and something that people within the organization really believe in. Um, and so that's really rewarding. It's been, it's been great. It was hard, but <laughs> it's been good. <laughs> I think that we should actually submit this podcast to your university as a really effective ad for getting a liberal arts degree. <laughs> <laughs> you can right. do anything. <laughs> it would help a lot of um, parents to not be so nervous, I think. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. So yeah. you mentioned that you were thinking about going to law school, but mm -hmm. then you realized that that wasn't for you. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if, you know, I was, I was looking at your blog recently and mm -hmm. you had written a poem that you wrote many years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and you revisited this on your blog. And the last stanza was about how women put such effort 
into making themselves into something, something um, that fits the status quo or that's beautiful or put together in some sort of way before they leave the house. Mm -hmm. Yet they often feel like they leave their true selves behind or they don't have a chance to really figure out, well, what is my true self? Mm -hmm. Um, And you referred to this as the feeling of being trapped behind the guise of perfection, Mm -hmm. which I feel like so many people, so many women can identify with this feeling. Yeah. And I wonder if that was part of this idea that I should go to law school. This is a, you know, this is a prestigious thing. This sounds good. This looks good. Um, did that factor into your decision to go? And then what was your decision to not go? How did that affect it? Yeah. Yeah. So for sure, I think, um, you know, for most of my life, um, I felt like I spent so much time watching my life unfold before me. And I think what I realized is that it's exactly what you're talking about. Just feeling like I'm choreographing everything, almost like I'm right. watching, watching yeah. this show of my life. And, and, and it was all because I was so focused on perfection and, and being something that people, um, respected and, you know, really more than that, like couldn't find fault in, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think for sure, like law school was definitely something that was prestigious. Um, it would, um, give me kind of, I, I do love learning, you know, and I didn't want to give up on that yet. And so the idea of going to get further schooling, you know, was something that was truly interesting to me, but also something that I really wanted to do again for that, for that kind of, um, approval and, um, you know, for people to say, wow, you know, she's done, she's gotten her extra schooling. Like she's, she's put that time in and, you know, and less for myself, I think. And I think when I realized that, you know, I got an email and I remember the day I got an email telling me what books I would need to buy for the courses I was enrolled in. (laughs) And I was just like, it was like the record stopped, you know, like, and I was like, what am I doing? You know, I'm not personally invested in this. I, I don't want to be the kind of lawyer that would, would, would allow me to make enough money to pay off the loans that I'm going to have to, um, take out to pay for this schooling, you know, and it right. just felt like I needed to take a step back, you know, and, and I worked really hard in college and I think I realized that I needed some time to figure out, you know, what I wanted to do and maybe jumping into something so big, um, you know, because I wasn't sure what else to do. And it sounded like something that would be a good thing it wouldn't hurt me. I remember thinking all the time, well, it's not going to hurt me if I go to law school, you know? Right. And it's true, but I, I'm so glad I don't regret it one bit. (laughs) I'm just, I'm so grateful that I, you know, there have been moments in my life where I think it's a truly, it's, it's this, people talk about that gut feeling and it sounds so cliche, but it's happened to me a few times in my life where 
it's like everything else stops and you're just like, no, I, I have to listen to myself. I have to like take a step back and just like listen to what my body, myself, like everything is telling me. And it was one of those moments. I'm, I'm just so grateful when those moments happen and I listen, <laughs> you know, I mentioned that I, I felt like so much of my life I was putting on this play for people. I think that when you have those moments of clarity and you have that, that really visceral reaction to what's happening and it doesn't have to be bad, but it's just this, you can't ignore it. It's this throbbing feeling. It's so rewarding to listen to it and hear it and act on it because you're truly acting on your own volition and and what you're feeling in that moment. And it's not easy. It wasn't easy for me to defer law school. I had no idea what I was going to do, you know, and I didn't want to be living at home with my parents, with all my friends, you know, still in the cities where they went to college or, you know, but I knew that it wasn't right. And I think, you know, it's just, it, Looking back, it's probably one of the things that, one of the major things that helped me to see I need to drive the boat of my life. Like, I need, no one else is going to make me happy or make sure that I spend the minutes I have the right way. You know, I need to. You are the captain of your ship. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So where do you think this drive for approval came from? Yeah, so I had um, kind of a, I think I'm, so I think I'm very, I'm a very sensitive person. Um, I'm, it's what makes me a really good product manager. (laughs) I'm able to kind of like um, sense the right thing to say to customers or like, um, you know, how to manage politics or differing interests, you know. But it also makes me kind of really easily um, impacted by the way people are behaving around me. Um, And often what that meant for me growing up was that I took it in and made what was happening around me somehow my fault or somehow something I could control. If that makes sense, I don't know if that makes sense. So you know, I had kind of a stressful childhood. Um, I feel like we all have, but, um, you know, my mom was dealing with a lot of, um, what ended up being like anxiety and depression. And, um, you know, it often felt like we couldn't do anything right. Um, she was often angry. Uh, and so I think a lot of, because I'm sensitive and because I always want to fix things and make it right, you know, I think I really um, internalized this idea that to make things run smoothly um, and ultimately to make the people around me happy, you know, I need to be as, um, as, what's the word I'm thinking of? <laughs> I guess just unoffensive as possible, you know, like, um, and so I think that coupled with kind of a natural drive to do well and, um, make the most of 
my time, I think I've always felt this big pressure, pressure to like make the most of my life because I don't have much time. You know, it's always in this thing where I've like just really wanted to make sure that I'm, I'm not wasting time. And so I think that all of that wrapped into the package of me (laughs) means that I am apt to want to be perfect and strive to be the best, um, which is not always realistic and it's not always healthy. (laughs) I remember Uh, a few years ago, I visited you in Boston um, mm -hmm. and speaking of your family and this kind of idea of perfection, Mm -hmm. your family was at this time kind of reeling from a secret your father had kept Mm -hmm. and had revealed. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what happened? Yes. So um, in 2012, um, it was August and um, my father um, surprised me. My parents are from, and I am from upstate New York and I was living in Boston and I still am. Um, and my dad showed up at my doorstep on a Friday afternoon and told me that, um, he had been having an affair with a woman at work, uh, for over a year and that he was leaving my mom and selling our childhood home. Um, and, I think, you know, I, I feel like I always give this caveat, um, <laughs> like I'm making excuses, but you know, when you hear about something like that happening, it's kind of, it's so pre- unfortunately prevalent, you know, and yeah. it's just hard to kind of imagine what it's like. And I think for me and for my family, it, it really rocked us. Um, my dad, was the person in our family. I have a brother also and, um, my mom obviously. And, uh, you know, my dad was the person that I identified the most with. He was the person that I got along really well with. He was the person that I went to with problems. Um, he would always take my brother and I skiing over the weekends in the winter. And, um, you know, I remember he would sneak us to get fast food when my mom wasn't around and just, (laughs) you know, he always played fun music and he was a person who, and I, I'm saying all this in the past tense, like he's died, but it kind of gives you a sense for how it feels. Um, because that, that person that we knew, like really he's gone and, um, we don't, it's hard to know who he is now. Um, So, yeah, and, you know, it's interesting, your your segue, Jen, was almost perfect because I, um, it's amazing, like, during that point in my life, um, you know, he told me about the affair, and um, my brother at the time was living in a city in Massachusetts about um, an hour and a half away from where I was living, and my dad's plan was to next drive to my brother's house and tell him as well. And I did not know what to do. You know, I didn't want my brother to go through this alone, but I also didn't want to come in there as if I were 
sharing the news with him, you know, just like my dad. But regardless, right. I, I decided to um, go, and so I packed a bag because I was most likely going to end up staying with my brother. And I remember in that moment that I was packing the bag, you know, I was in a relationship at the time, and I had been on birth control for several years, but I had kept it, you know, it was something that we didn't, it was like the third rail, you know, we, <laughs> we didn't discuss it, you know, but, but in that moment that he told me this, it was like everything changed. Right. And I'm packing my bag and I whip out the birth control and I don't care. I just didn't care that he saw it. This sense of liberation that, well, you know, not necessarily that I'm on my own now, but just this feeling that I'm an adult now. Like, like I am not an island, but I didn't feel those ties to him, you know? And I felt mm-hmm. like I didn't, I didn't need to be that perfect daughter, you know, because he was not the perfect father. And he had portrayed that to us for so long, you know, that, um, it was just this sense of, I had grown up, you know, and, and from that day forward, it's been so much easier and I don't know why. And it's such an odd thing to come out of such a painful experience, but it's like, I was forced into this liberated adulthood, um, and, you know, maybe it's too late or maybe it's early. I've talked to friends and I think as the, their parents are getting older and they're maybe not as quick or um, not as strong as they used to be, you know, they're starting to feel that sense of like the tables turning or, you know, but I felt that in that moment and I really felt like um, that weight of needing to be something for someone else just kind of go. (laughs) I like that you say it was this point of liberation for you. This weight was lifted. There was a sense of freedom. I don't know if you've talked to your father about this, but I wonder if he almost felt the same way because he didn't have to mold to certain expectations others had of him too. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I haven't, um, so, you know, and again, I don't need to make, um, excuses for myself, but, um, it's kind of been a a cascade of bad decisions and terrible events, um, from my father since then. And I haven't spoken with him, Hmm. uh, since that day really. Um, so I haven't spoken to him about it, but he did say something to my mother, um, that she recounted to me and he said, um, this is what happens when you build yourself up as heroes to your kids. And I just, you know, maybe this is, this is part podcast, part therapy session. Jen. <laughs> I know. Are you laying down? Are you on the couch? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and do you have your like, you know, white jacket and <laughs> oh, and a notepad and everything. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. I think, and I've said this before, and I, it's been a long road for me to be where I am today emotionally about what happened with my family. Um, but part of that journey 
involved me realizing that I'm not my father because there was so much fear that like if he could do this and he was who I saw myself in could I do something like this if I kept this guise of perfection or you know and he was that person looking back like he never complained about work even though he has always had a really hard time in his industry um you know, he never had, like, raised his voice. He never got angry. He never, um, just very strange things for a human, you know? <laughs> um, and I, it really made me look at myself and find the differences, um, which were soulless for me at that time, but also the likenesses, which helped me to kind of keep fighting through the uncomfortable things I had to do, like therapy and talking to Brian and really facing things head on, you know? Um, so yeah. (laughs) So Brian is your fiance. Yes. And soon to be husband. Mm -hmm. And in thinking about this experience that you had with your parents and your father and questioning yourself, am I capable of these things? Can I be faithful? Can, you know, I live up to certain expectations? How did this all play into your decision to get married? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it did. (laughs) Uh Yeah, that's it. No. Um, So I think that I was always one of those people that and this sounds ridiculous. I, I think I'm a very loving, warm person. But the, the strange thing was that in past relationships, I would always say, is this love? Like, is this what it feels like? I was never really sure, you know? Mm. But the minute I met Brian, I fell in love, I think. Um, <laughs> and if not love at first sight, it was um, something close to it. And... I knew and there was no questioning and, um, I wanted a family and I wanted to be with him and I wanted to be his wife. Um, and this, we met a year before, um, my father told us that he had been, um, not not met. We started dating uh, a year before my father told us about his affair. So, um, we didn't have much time. (laughs) And then when this happened, you know, I, I really was a mess. I was, I was really taking care of my mom, um, who needed me at that point. And it wasn't until probably a year or two ago that I really started feeling the effects of it, the affair and everything that happened on myself. Um, because I think I was in, like I was in old lady picking up a car off of, uh, her grandchild mode, you know, so it took a long time and, and, therapy, um, to work through that. But I think what I learned was that, um, and solidified was what I, what I kind of mentioned earlier was that I'm not my father, you know, and in that situation, um, I reached out for the help I needed. I talked to my mom. I talked to Brian. I talked to close friends. Um, and in return, you know, Brian was able to speak with me about this. He was able to support me. Um, 
and he is not my father. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and, I was going to say, on the flip side. Right, right. He is not my dad. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I really, I, I don't think that marriage as an institution is doomed. <laughs> uh, I think that marriage is hard and it takes work. And I think that my parents' situation and the fact that my dad had an affair was not just one day he woke up and started having an affair. It was a what I now I'm now calling a systemic problem, you know, <laughs> that was that was present in their marriage probably from the time I was born and most definitely from the time my brother was born. You know, they were having financial trouble that but they didn't talk about it and my mom didn't have any insight into anything and you know, so just um, you know, kind of a lot of history between them that I just wasn't aware of and I wouldn't have been because it wasn't my marriage, you know, and it's not my marriage. I think I really am confident and um, hopeful that we have the skills and I have the self-awareness to have a happy marriage, <laughs> if that makes sense. Absolutely. I yeah. think it's also really valuable to think of these experiences as something that makes you realize your own strengths. Mm -hmm. And so let's say you were in a bad spot in your marriage or Brian did cheat. You've been through a situation and you know you can survive. Exactly. You know you can make it through it. And I always, I remind myself of that whenever I get on this, you know, worst case scenario <laughs> in my mind. I mm -hmm. remember things that I've been through and I think, well, that wasn't pleasant. I right. didn't enjoy it but I'm here, I'm in a good place. So that means that whatever else happens, exactly, I can be here and in a good place. I can survive this situation. For sure. And I mean, I think, um, you know, one of the things that has stuck with me, um, from the period I was healing was this idea that your emotions or, you know, your anxiety, your, um, depressed thoughts, they're just a state of mind, right? And mm -hmm. just like an actual state in the country, you know, right. you can move from one state of mind to another. And it's so easy in situations where things are going wrong or you're feeling wrong that to remember that, you know, it's not permanent. It, I mean, it's easy to think that it is permanent, but you have to remember that it's not permanent. And what you said about, you know, resilience and strength to get through whatever may happen, um, really is that it's like bad times are just a state of mind. It's just a, a part of life and a part of your life, but you're strong enough to get through. And it's, it's like this analogy. Like I, <laughs> I used to have some, um, I'm a little neurotic. I feel like this is, this is coming out in the podcast, but I used to have this fear about like going to new places and like having to park somewhere and I'll be able to find a parking space, especially in the city. And I remember one night I was just so fed up with like 
worrying about this. That I was like, you know what, Emily, you are a smart person and you can get through this. Like you can figure it out in the moment. Like if there's a spot in the road that you can parallel park into, or if you'll need to go in the garage, it's not a big deal. And it's really just this like confidence that you're strong enough and capable enough to handle what comes at you when it comes at you. And so it frees you up to just live now, you know, isn't self-talk amazing. It's amazing. (laughs) You know, like put your, put your big lady pants on and park, you know, put yourself in that garage. Exactly. Don't be scared that you're not going to find your car. Exactly. Although I've been in that situation. It's not pleasant. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it works if you have the little clicker that makes your car beep. If you put it under your chin, your skull somehow like makes the signal travel further. And so if you're looking for your car, you can, yeah, it's so strange, but try it. Is this a trial and error thing or did you read about this? (laughs) Brian told me I'll have to figure out where you Okay. Awesome. (laughs) I'm going to have to just go put my car in a garage and try this. Exactly. That's amazing. mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So did you ever watch Sex in the City? Yes. Okay. So Sex in the City, I remember it was what, over a decade ago that it was on early 2000s. Um, And I recently read this article that was talking about shifts in feminism in television Mm -hmm. shows. And it was was focusing on the early 2000s. And so I thought, you know, I had to rewatch Sex in the City and kind of see it through this lens of present day feminism. Mm-hmm. And see kind of what these authors are talking about. And, you know, Charlotte. Yep. Okay. So Charlotte, the one that's most attached to these traditional constructs of romance and relationships, struggles when things don't go according to plan. I think that, I, I mean, even though she's tied to these traditional constructs, I think that so much of Charlotte is about this idea of expectations. Yes. And these expectations that she has for what life should look like, what romance should look like, what being married should look like. And not saying that that's what everyone thinks, but that's very much what she has in her mind. Yes. And there's this scene that I was watching last week when she and her boyfriend are at dinner. And mm-hmm. she is convinced that he is going to ask her to marry her, but he's, <laughs> he's not doing it at the time. And so kind of grabbing from the tactics of his mother, who she admires, <laughs> she puts her hand on his arm and she says, well, maybe we should get married. <laughs> and then her boyfriend, who's really terrible at making decisions for himself, just responds with, alrighty. <laughs> and then... In the next scene, she's at Carrie's apartment, and she's lamenting this really matter-of-fact engagement and how it went against everything she had planned for herself. And when I watched that scene, more than anything else, I thought about this idea of expectations yep. and these preconceived notions that we all, even though they may differ in many ways, that we have about the, the engagement process. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, how are your ideas about engagement challenged through your own experience? <laughs> um, I like your laugh. <laughs> that, that is promising. I'm trying to determine whether or not I should tell. Um, <laughs> Reveal the whole story? Yeah. So 
I will. Um, so I was ready, you know, I was ready to be married and I do want a family. And I think that played a lot into it for me. Um, because I was feeling, uh, just like I'm ready for the next thing. Um, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Um, and (laughs) it was before Christmas time and Brian's brother, we were at, uh, Brian's family's house and Brian's brother was there and he had just gotten home from the jewelry store where he had bought his girlfriend who, um, they have an extremely long distance relationship. She lives in Brazil. Wow. And they've been together for probably a year and a half. Um, and they, they only see each other maybe, you know, uh, maybe once every, uh, four months, three months. So not often. Um, and he had gotten her a ring for Christmas and, um, Brian's mother jokes about Mike that, you know, he could have a family, um, and no one would know it. He's very (laughs) secretive. So we were all kind of like, well, what does this mean? Like, what's this ring about? He's saying that it's not, he's not going to ask her to marry him, but you know, so I'm like, oh my God, like they've been together a year. They don't even live near each other. Is he going to propose to her? And here is his brother who like won't commit to me. And I really want to have a family. And like, (laughs) I don't know what he's waiting for. And, you know, so it's in the moment, it really felt like it was my emotions. But as I was preparing for (laughs) tonight, you know, I was reflecting on it and wondering, it's so hard sometimes to know what is truly your reaction to something and what is something that has been, you've been primed to react to in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what happened was we left Brian's parents' house and, um, on the way home, I started hysterically crying, uh, basically out of nowhere. And we had to pull over into a whole foods parking lot and, turns out that Brian already had, um, an engagement ring. Um, and he started saying to me, do you want me to one day just throw a ring at you when you're like wondering about when we're going to get married and asking me if I want to get married? And is that how you want this engagement to go? That I just say here, here it is here. We're engaged. And I was like, no, I don't want it to be that way. And, you know, so (laughs) I was clearly impatient for it. Um, But when it came down to it, you know, I had no expectations. Like I told Brian I didn't even like diamonds, um, that I didn't need an engagement ring. I told him that I didn't, um, certainly didn't want this big elaborate thing. I wanted wanted it to be about us, you know, because we're really not big flashy people. Um, and so I guess in a lot of ways I wasn't looking for a traditional, um, engagement, but Brian gave me a beautiful, um, diamond ring, which it turns out I love. So between your family and Brian's family, thinking Mm -hmm. about, you know, wedding planning, Mm -hmm. um, many of us come from families where culture and tradition have a large role in the Mm -hmm. ceremony. And I think this can be a really difficult time 
for women to assert themselves and their (laughs) independence because it feels like everyone has advice to give or requests to be made. So how have you asserted yourself while planning your wedding? This is another way where I think about that kind of liberation I felt, you know, when I found out about my dad and I truly felt like, um, like an adult, you know, I still have family and I am still very close to my mother, but that the decisions I make about my life are my decisions. (laughs) Um, and so I've really kind of kept held that true in wedding planning. Um, I am doing so much of it on my own. Um, I, we came up with the guest list and, um, shared it with our families and, uh, they squawked a little bit about not being involved in creating it, but really, you know, we communicated to them that it was really important to us that it wasn't some show of lavishness or, um, you know, just to pull every random, uh, friend that our parents have ever had, um, into this wedding, you know, when we didn't know them, you know, it just wasn't us. We wanted it to be intimate and, um, close and, you know, it's really hard. It does feel like, you know, we're, we're pretty close to the wedding. We're getting married in October and it does feel like at this point, every decision is kind of a loaded one in terms of what people's reactions will be. Um, you know, I, I refused to go to a traditional dress shop because I hated the idea of spending so much money on a dress. Um, and so I found a really gorgeous dress that was perfect for me for about $200. (laughs) Um, and you know, my mom wished that we could have had that experience in the store, um, trying dresses on and, but that just would have stressed me out and, um, you know, I really wouldn't have enjoyed it. So there have been, um, concessions and the one major one is Brian's, um, family was, we were initially planning to get married at, um, the state, uh, courthouse and then have a large party. Um, but, uh, Brian's family was very, very upset by that idea. And so, um, we are having more of a wedding, <laughs> um, but we are having a really short ceremony and that means we're going to have three hours of dancing. Um, I think that it's a good, it's been a good compromise. <laughs> I think maybe your motto for the wedding should kind of go back to that post that you wrote by, you know, God forbid this be a day where you feel trapped behind the guise of perfection. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's not what it's about. It's about being authentically you because I think what I've learned is, you know, for a successful marriage and a successful life and a successful career, you can't get anywhere (laughs) unless you're being authentic um, because, then you're just kind of the way I think about it in my personal pep talks is if, if you're at the whim of everyone else, you're, you're like seaweed at the bottom of the ocean. Like you're just wobbling around or like one of those big blow up things outside the 
the oh, car the dealership. Yes, oh, you know, like that those, one of yes. those things where you're just wobbly and you you kind of lose yourself in your center. Um, and so I think you're completely right. I think that authenticity is is key to a good wedding. <laughs> well, and in a sense, I think it's not only a celebration of you being your authentic self, but it's a celebration of you being able to love and accept someone else's authentic self. Yes. I love that. I mean, that is so true. So, so true. And I think that takes courage. It does. It does because it's, it's messy and it's, you know, and you have to be vulnerable and that's something that I have struggled with forever, you know? And, um, and like I said, you know, being offensive at times because that's what it means to be human, you know, um, just, you know, and I think that's what, that's the only way that you gain true intimacy though, with friends or family or with the person that you, your partner, you know, like, I think you can't have that intimacy unless you're showing it all. And, um, because then they don't know you. (laughs) I think that is the perfect way to end our conversation on the idea that vulnerability is not mutually exclusive from strength. Mm -hmm. So true. (laughs) Well, Emily, thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Oh, thank you so much, Jen. I feel like I should um, pay you for the session. (laughs) I've just, I've just kind of rambled. So (laughs) you'll receive a bill in the mail.